You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. thing that, that I really think is very, very important for people to understand is that concept of morality and constitutionality, they're not the same. It's really important to understand and to sort of figure out if we want intersection and when we want intersection. And by the way, who gets to decide? A lot of people want to get rid of hate speech. And hate speech is awful and terrible and reduces the marketplace of ideas. But how, how do we do that? Who gets to decide? That's a frightening concept. That's why the default option being speech, I like. First of all, the website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. If you go there, we have more episodes for you to listen to. Remember to subscribe or follow us on whatever application you're listening to us on. We do very well on Podcast Addict and Overcast uh, right now. Also, of course, most of our listeners are iTunes, Apple. If you're on there, please subscribe. It helps the program. Our guest today, Lynn Greeky, has also been on the Road to Now podcast with Bob and Ben, so I suggest you check out the interview there. They cover some different ground. We're going to talk about free speech today and the First Amendment, a lot about the Constitution. What we're not going to get into, because this interview was recorded in March, is the rumors and possibility, and now a little bit closer, that Elon Musk could be buying Twitter. I'm not sure we have the capability to do it. I think I know what my guest might say based on answers that you'll hear later in the podcast on different questions about private corporations and freedom of speech. Uh, for me, wait and see. I do think it's a, you know, certainly a large amount of money that Twitter was purchased for. And all my hopes are that the any purpose for that will be philanthropic rather than, say, a platform for running for president or something like that. I use Twitter. I will continue to use Twitter. I also open up account on others, including Counter Social, but I'm not. Um, my history can beat up your politics does very well on Twitter. I like it as a communication channel. Uh, I, I think it has a lot of positives. I, I think people are always afraid of like, what's going on, though, behind the scenes that I can't possibly know about. And I have to rely on the best computer programming minds to even know what kind of algorithms are being done behind the scenes and there's a pledge there to be transparent about it so all of these things there's nothing that we can address on this cast at this point about elon musk uh, buying twitter except the general concepts that i talk about with lynn Greenkey. so i'm speaking with professor lynn Greenkey, the associate teaching professor at syracuse university in the department of communication and rhetorical studies she is the author of when Freedom Speaks, The Boundaries and Boundlessness of Our First Amendment Right. And she joins me on the program today. Professor Greenkey, thanks for coming on. 
Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. The First Amendment, it's so basic, it's the first one. Uh, It's something that people assume, having done this podcast a long time, we never talked much about First Amendment. It was the Mm -hmm. second, yes, (laughs) the the 14th, quite a bit. Uh, It's just kind of assumed. And now it seems to be so much in the news. But the concept of freedom speech, though, does seem to have changed over time. It seems like in different eras, it's protected and it's everyone understands it. In other eras, it's it's government restraints it greatly. Absolutely. It has changed over time. We think of the First Amendment now, today, um, as uh, uh, that when the Supreme Court gets issues or any court gets an issue about the First Amendment, that the default option seems to be to protect speech. That if we're going to do something about criminalizing speech or punishing speech or restricting speech in some way, it's got to be done for a good reason. Um, that was not always the case. And, and your references to the turn of the last century, um, when that wasn't so much the case, that the default option wasn't pr- to protect speech, but rather actually to protect the government. The courts and the legislatures were far less speech protective. And as you had mentioned, I'm in the communication rhetorical studies department, so we just, we study communication theory. And communication theory in the in the in the turn of the last century was also that speech seemed to have this. They, there was a concept of mediated speech in particular that had this this superpower of some. Mm-hmm. That um, that words themselves could trigger to action. The the best metaphor is, and then in this time it's an interesting metaphor of a vaccine. That you give a vaccine to a population, and the whole population reacts the same way. And so there was this concept that you would that words would be a trigger to action. That these words would be would be communicated, and the audience would respond, um, basically in this in the same way. So, the, so this concept sort of developed into this test called the bad tendency test. And if there were words that had a bad tendency to lead to criminal action to, or to lead to stuff that the government was afraid of, and in that sense it was communist. And, act, and unionism, um, then the government could shut it down because they, because these words had a bad tendency and the government had the power to shut it down. So that was in the beginning of the last century. Then, then it morphed a little bit, got a little bit more speech protective, a little bit more contextual. And that was the clear and present danger test that um, if the context of the speech seemed to, to indicate that there was a clear and present danger that something was going to happen that the government had a right to or the power to protect, then the government could act on it. It was a little bit more speech protective than the the bad tendency test, um, but not much. Um, it the 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 that's default- the fire in the fire in the theater. Well, that's an interesting metaphor, too, because everyone says, "Oh, you can't yell fire in a theater." Mm-hmm. Yes, you can if there's a fire. Right. <laughs> of course. But that's a big difference, right? You can't falsely yell for a fire in a theater. You can't create panic. But if there's a fire, go ahead and scream your head off. Right. So that's I that's and I think that's an important thing and student and you know it's wonderful to watch the lights <laughs> go off. You know, when when I say this, oh yeah, like you can't create a clear and present danger. You can't create a panic. But you can do it if it if it's if it's something if you are actually trying to save people. Because one's like an, one is an action, one one is something beyond the speech act. 
and, and the other's speech. Right? There's a fire, I'm telling you. you know, it's a, And I can imagine there's a totalitarian society out there that absolutely might put in people in jail. They're just, just, we don't want you even screaming fire. Oh, well, exactly. Well, certainly we're seeing that in this horrific situation that we see in the Ukraine and in Russia. Um, and we can see really what um, our speech protections do do for us and, and how horrific it is and, 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 and what a tragedy is when we when you don't have that. Um, so and just I mean, in Russia generally, um, in, in any any given day. Yeah, the, the, that it's um, I mean, I know there are a number of decisions during the World War Two. And one is like, OK, you can't hand out leaflets that are specifically telling people not to comply with the draft and then later uh, some of it was modified i mean right and and those those sort of cases that one of them that you're talking about is shank versus the united states and abrams versus you and the other one is abrams versus the united states and those were where pamphlets were handed out that would not i i i, I would think would not today have been um criminalized and those those the individuals who did that would not have been um, some were deported and others were jailed or de- jailed and deported. Um, and I don't think that would happen. So in the middle of the last century is really when um, the court started to shift. And and um, the big case was called Brandenburg versus the United States. And what is so fascinating about that is this, this guy, Brandenburg was a racist. He was a he was a, a white supremacist. He was the the leader of the KKK in his community, and he he had a rally, and he called newspaper, to, uh, or rather, um, the television, uh, local television company, to come, and and he and he was using all these all these racial slurs and saying we're we're going to, by the way, march on Washington, and there are so many of us, and 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 if and if you don't listen to us, you know, there's gonna there's gonna be violence. So that's the sort of stuff that he said, and and the local television then sent it to the national news, and it and it and it played on national news and he was arrested for 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 inciting uh, inciting violence and the court said not so fast you, he didn't he was advocating violence he was not inciting violence and that has become a very very important distinction you are it is constitution you are constitutionally protected your first amendment will protect you for advocating violence it will not protect you for inciting violence and in order to be um, to be restricted in your speech or to be or or to be um, punished for your speech for inciting the test is pretty is is pretty strong that it has to there has to be an intent to incite there has to be a likelihood that it's going to happen and there has to be a temporal connection to the words and and the and the possibility of the of criminal action or violence occurring. Um, and that has protected a lot of people. And it's certainly um, in, in our recent memory where the where the debate is the strongest is in the January 6th and, and former President Trump. Did he incite violence with that crowd? Did he intend to incite violence? Were his likely to create that violence um, and and is there a temporal connection to it is it because of his the words that he said that they went and marched down and and attacked the capitol and that's a really interesting question those folks who came to do damage not the ones who came to protest because the ones who came to protest were engaging in protected speech 
whether they were whether it was based on on um, on fake news and and whether they were misinformed or not, they believed that the election was stolen and they had every right to protest it. Every single right to protest it. There was there is there wasn't a right, and we can talk about you talked a little bit about about action, you know, conduct and speech. So it wasn't then to uh, to engage in violence as a means of communicating. But back to President Trump, did he incite that violence? Because the folks that came to the ellipse that day and to Washington that day had every intention of committing violence. Right. There was a group of them that had bear spray and uh, bulletproof vests and so he right. saying, I forget the words, but something, if I go down the Congress and, you know, then that's going to be the test of the, it sounds like a temporal uh, connection. That sounds to me like a time limit too. Like it have to be, that action has to occur pretty soon after the words. Well, I mean, the action did occur pretty soon. In, after that, in his, that case, right. But, but were, were his words the trigger? Were, were his words the reason that it happened? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's it's not clear you know i think that that there can be a really strong and honest debate on whether or not president former president trump incited the violence those guys came ready to ready to rumble did president trump do it i think it's a really interesting question um i don't think it's ever going to be litigated and maybe that's a good thing um you know bad cases make bad law um uh, but 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 that's but that's that's where it is. You can advocate. Did he just advocate? You know, advocate. Go ahead and tell them that you know this was a stolen election, or did he actually incite the violence? And advocating violence. The, the, how do we describe that? Then that's just a person saying in general. I think you should be mad as heck, and you should go downtown and attack people now. Well, it is and it isn't. I mean, you said it go down and go down and attack. So, you know, um, is that a call to action? It is a call to action. But we also know that in the heat of the moment, we all say stuff, right? And was this just, was it just political hyperbole? Was it, was it, was it just something like this guy Brandenburg, which who was saying to a bunch of guys that weren't going to do anything anyway? My God, they had hoods on their heads. They're not going anywhere. Um, you know, uh, was, so is it, you know, was it, is it really, is it really an incitement? Is, you know, given the context of the situation, is it intended to incite? And is there a likelihood that it's going to happen? So maybe, maybe not. You need some more information. But you also bring up another interesting thing, um, this temporal connection, right? We have the Internet now and we have social media now. And and this is also back to to January 6th, those folks that came there ready to rumble, right? They came ready to rumble because all of these messages that they had been getting about getting them ready for violence through social media. So... If the so so but but social media is is asynchronous and and context is disembodied. So does this does this Brandenburg test uh, which requires a temporal connection and this concept of imminence does it still work in the social media environment or does it need to be modified to match the media? And that's something that also has not been addressed yet another fascinating discussion right 
Because you could have someone, you know, on Twitter or on Facebook really quickly saying like, you are a Democrat, you are a Republican, and I would like to hurt you. You know, mm-hmm. and it's a kind of, or I'm going to beat you up tonight. Like, there's a kind of threat, but this person could be in, one person's in Seattle, the other one's in New York, who knows? Right. Yeah, there seems to be some ways to, there's more opportunities to express things that are bad, like expressing violence. Seems like it's the Wild West out, you know. It is the Wild West. Um, it is the Wild West. And, and and that's why this whole concept of advocacy and incitement is, is fascinating. And it's certainly fascinating from a philosophical perspective, but applying it now to today's world um, is interesting. Although you also just mentioned something else, which is interesting. You use the word threat. Um, uh, uh, there's a there's a constitutional First Amendment concept called true threats. True threats are different than threatening language. I can threaten you, um, but it's just it's words. It's words of threat. A true threat is something where the words themselves are intended to terrorize. When I talk to it um, uh, to my students, I talk to them. It's like the true threats are basically the same as as waving a sharpened knife, you know, at somebody that they terrorize you, and that you and because of the words themselves, you you become in fear of of your of your life and liberty just by the words, whether or not. The, the threat is ever acted upon, but the words terrorize you. And that's something that happens over the internet quite a bit. And there's not a need for a temporal connection there. Those things can happen, um, again, asynchronously. Um, and so that may be a doctrine that that um, that becomes the, the stronger model in, uh, it, you know, in, in this new world that we're living in. How much relevance does that original case now I forget. I think it was New Hampshire, the original fighting words case where the Jehovah's Witness, I think, was was just threatening or not even threatening. I think it's fighting words. It was literally like words that made this police officer or constable. I probably have this all wrong, but maybe not. So angry that there was no way he couldn't be, be turned yeah. to, to violent reaction. Well, I mean, it's such a silly case, right? I mean, it was this this kid. He was, I think, nineteen, maybe twenty one. I can't remember. Um, and he was a Jehovah's Witness, and at the time, no one liked Jehovah's Witness, and he was proselytizing, and you know, and he really believed in what he said, and um, and 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 he was um, speaking ill about other faiths, and um, and so they took him off his uh, off his little stand there, and he got angry, and he said, um, "You're a goddamn fascist," I think is what he said, and. Um, policeman got uh, got insulted, and so this was became fighting words, and they're words that tend to provoke a uh, tend to provoke a response. Um, it, well, those that wasn't exact words, but it was uh, words that sort of uh, that inherently are, are are words that just really have no. I wish I have the quote in front of me. Mm-hmm. No place in our marketplace of ideas, basically, um, is 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 what that was. When we were twenty years from World War Two, you know, a little bit right. closer. To right. where you call someone, I could see it. You know, it's it's like you're telling me something that makes me have to react. 
Is it still in, influencing the law today, or is that kind of we moved on from? Yes it? and no. Okay, yeah. so so yes, it's still. I mean, it's a doctrine. It's the case of Shaplinsky versus New Hampshire, and again, it, you know, it's it, the concept of words that have no place in our marketplace of ideas. There's just there's no reason for them, right? That there's no no value. They're called a low value words. There's no value to words that that you know that have that don't don't enhance the marketplace of ideas. It has been, um, and the Supreme Court hasn't. Really Really made um, a ruling that that supported the fighting words doctrine since then, um, but the lower courts have. Um, but what they have done is they've really limited its application to provocative speech. And and again, the the, the um, physical uh, analogy that I use is you know, someone you know, someone uh, waving a fist in your face. And and the the best narrative that you can think about is is like a bar fight. And there is actually a lower court case where um, the bartender um, was was behind the bar and his girlfriend was was in front of the bar and there was this in inebriated customer who was apparently making all kinds of rude and um, and uh, comments about the girlfriend and the uh, you know so much so that they provoke and, and really provocative speech about the the girlfriend to the bartender and to the girl and it really provoked the bartender and so there's a bar fight well so there's this bar fight and then the 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 drunk patron you know gets gets taken out of the bar and he apparently must have um, asserted in the criminal trial must have said, hey, I was exercising my First Amendment rights to say what I wanted to about the girlfriend. And the court said, uh, no, <laughs> that you don't, you're right. not protected by your First Amendment right when you when you engage in this sort of provocative speech, like words that are in, intended to provoke a response. So that's really where the fighting words doctrine is now. So again, if the whole point is, if you're provoking someone, you can't turn around and then say, oh, I'm just exercising my First Amendment right. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like Democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics. And NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you. And what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts.
But well, a lot of that is still a lot of that still changes though when we take it to Twitter. Because there's a lot of that. It seems it seems to me that there could be a lot of that insulting people's wives and girlfriends on online. Right. But it's but not, again, you're not in a bar. There's a, there's a temporal connection again, temporal, right? Because okay. provocative speech sort of sort of um, infers that concept, right? And again, that bar fight. Like there was no time to reflect, right? But when you're on Twitter, um, you know there there may be some other things you can do. But on Twitter. There's no there. There's time to reflect because again, you know, it's not the the temporal connection isn't there. So, but again, it could be extended. Maybe and maybe it will be and maybe it should be. But each time we extend it, we lessen that concept that the the default option is to protect speech. I'm thinking of something like Shaplinsky, but a little bit different situation. And hypothetically, let's say it's modern. A person like a Shaplinsky character. He's not calling me a fascist, and maybe fascist doesn't have the same uh, same fighting words tendency that it has in uh, it had in the 1960s anyway. But a, a character like that is following me in the park. He's shouting at me, and it could be. It's not fighting words in my hypothetical example. It's 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 his. His the the corporations are taking over, but I'm walking away. He's following. He's in my ear. He's constantly shouting. I'm walking away more. I'm at the end of the park. This Shaplinsky like character is still shouting at me. And has he crossed the line of free speech? And connected to that, do I have a right like not to listen to speech? Okay, so maybe if he's if he's provoking you, mm-hmm. maybe. You also can talk about whether or not his 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 speech has transformed is really more about conduct and less about speech. He's following you. He's invading your space. He's not letting you cross the street in peace. He's invading, you know, speaking too close to my ear might be. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. this is other. Okay. You know, this isn't maybe not maybe not so much about about speech. It may be it may be more about about conduct. Um, And there was another part that you asked me that I. Oh, and connected to that, it's kind of implied in my question. Like, do the do I therefore have a right to not listen? Just because, you know, because if you look at the, let let me explain it this way, in the extreme of the free speech of the First Amendment, everyone's out there speaking, they're all on soapboxes. Well, don't I have the right to not listen to you as well? Okay, so there are two, really two parts to that question. One is, you know, if you're a captive audience, like you really can't get away, which is, which is part of the, your first scenario, right? Are you a captive? audience where where you're an unwilling listener and you're just helpless to to get away from him then 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 you can stop his speech and he can be restricted and the cops can come and get him and say hey you know can it um i think what you're really talking about here is this concept of cancel culture right where you have students come on or you have a speaker come on to a, a, a college campus and this is a speaker who um who who takes uh who takes a, a position that is contrary maybe to the majority situation or is just it's just really sort of antagonistic um and and wants to speak and there's certainly a group of, of students that want to listen to this person and there are uh, there's another group of students that that don't want to hear what he, that really don't mm-hmm. want to guy or woman an opportunity to speak so um the 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 and so and so the people who are opposed to the speaker come and shout the speaker down 
right? So now we have a situation where the speaker can't get the message across. The listeners can't hear the speaker um, and, and because the, the students are, are, the other students are, are shouting them down. So where does this all fall? Well, first of all, um, it's not illegal or unconstitutional to shout down a speaker with whom you disagree. The shouters are actually exercising their own First Amendment right. So it's not illegal to do that. Again, maybe you can transform that into behavior mm-hmm. and, and get them out. But but if it's shouting, it's not it's not it. it they are exercising their own First Amendment right. Um my personal feeling about that is why shout the speaker down? I mean, isn't that evidence of intolerance of, of ideas different from your own? And if you want tolerance to be um, to be exercised in favor of your views, shouldn't you exercise them in favor of someone else's views, even if you disagree with them? And 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 by shouting them down, it's it's just an exercise in intolerance. But you can but they can like they can do it, and it's a really hard you know where it's where, a I, hard choice because I could I, see what you're. Saying. Saying, absolutely. I generally agree with that. But I could also see, I think what it happens is where people feel they're not empowered. And it's like this speaker, I don't think they should have this large of a venue, say, and I'm going to reduce it by reducing. And this actually is not just cancel culture, but it happens, I think, at political. I think some of the opposite campaigns will send people over to sort of shout down the other candidate. It's just sort of a... Um, a reducer. I guess it does get to the question: Do the people, though, in the audience have a right to listen? Yeah, that yeah, that you have a right that you do. You have a, a right to to right to listen and a right to hear and a right to know. Um, so, so certainly the audience has a right that's also being affected in mm. political rallies. Um, those are those can be a little different because of just the nature of the rally and generally where they where they occur. They generally don't occur in necessarily public or, or government sponsored places, but more private spaces. And because they're in private spaces they um, that that can be taken care of um because because pri- we're because because it's really when we're talking about the first amendment we're talking about what the government can do to restrict your speech um private the the the, the pri- private schools private companies can restrict speech uh, uh, much more significantly than than the government can but that's a good point though i hear that quite often like you hear that you see that in internet debates for instance like oh first amendment only has to do with the government which I think is true, but like almost to what you said before, like, there has to be an American cultural value. But we didn't just enact this First Amendment and make it apply to a bunch of uh, school administrators and policemen, right? I mean, if we're a First Amendment country, there should be this like um, overreaching, you know, preference for, for speech, even in some of those situations. I love this question. I get this sort of thing from my students all the time. And what I say to them all the time is that the moral, the Constitution is doesn't show us moral boundaries. The First Amendment doesn't show us moral boundaries. So the moral boundaries, because you just said should, shouldn't mm-hmm. we do this? Well, of course we should, right? Of course we should be tolerant, and of course we should we 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 should ha- let every let people speak, and we and we and we shouldn't allow and we shouldn't allow you know people to bully and stuff. Um, so the, our moral boundaries are really are really quite vast, right? You you know where we where we can see where you know what what we what we think ought to be moral, but the constitutional boundaries are are much smaller. So just because something is immoral, doesn't make it unconstitutional. 
And that's a, that's also a hard concept to sort of embrace because we want immoral stuff to be unconstitutional, right? But who gets to decide what's moral and immoral, particularly today, right? So there's a little bit more than that, – that gives employers a little more wiggle room with uh, restricting the speech of their employees on their t- when they're on the employer's yeah. clock. Yeah, yeah. And um, but it's limited in some ways, right? I mean, and and I guess this is the school example. But Tinker and Tinker and De, first Des Moines, um, Des Moines, you can wear an armband. Uh, at least back then, I don't know if that's been overturned or anything like that. Uh, kind of like it's it sounds like because you're kind of quiet about it, just wearing an armband, making some statement. It, it does seem sometimes arbitrary. Some of these rules, it's like you can you can't burn a draft card. You can burn a flag, can wear an armband, but not everything a student or an employee um, communicates is protected. Okay, so they're like you've had like a bunch of different things. I know it's a bunch. It just and I guess that leads to like an overall like right because of this. Should we be thinking this is kind of arbitrary? You know? It isn't. There, there is a formula. I mean, the formula sometimes sort of changes, and sometimes it changes because of context, and sometimes it changes because the court changes. You know, I mean, we're sort of seeing that now, right? The the court has changed and some of us are shaking in our boots as to what's about to come down. So um, so that that's part of it. But but the but the, the first thing I want to talk about is the concept of of conduct as speech, right? That burning burning a draft card, right? Conduct as speech. Um it it the situation just because you and this is again the the January sixth folks, right? Just because they they their their violence was intended to communicate something does not make their violent acts constitutionally protected by the First Amendment. So 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 some conduct that intends to communicate is still not protected by the First Amendment. And that draft card burning thing was exactly one of those things. At the time, Congress had, had, had crafted an amendment which made it illegal, criminal, to burn your draft card. And the and the and Congress said we need this in order we have the uh, you know we need this in order to make sure that we can raise our army. It really, was sort of a bunch of nonsense, but mm-hmm. they says we need this to raise our army and um and so the court said look you know this is what congress said they need it for and um and we understand that you want that you're using that you're burning the draft card as a means of communicating your opposition to the draft and good for you you've communicated your message but just because you choose to transform a criminal act into a communicative act doesn't now mean that you can you get the first amendment protection the, the flag is very, very different, okay, for a couple of reasons. First of all, the flag itself is imbued with communication, right? We raise the flag, we wave the flag, we salute the flag. Everything about the flag is communicative, right? And so and so, these flag-burning statutes are actually saying, you know, the flag is communicative, but you can't, um, uh, you can't now uh, put a different communicative meaning upon, upon the flag. So these, these the legislation is focused on the speech element, not on a criminal element, but on the speech element. And the court said, 
you can't do that. Like, like, you know, this is all about communication and um, and using the flag is a means of communication. And what th- this happened in Texas, it's happened in other places, too. But what the, Texas had a non-flag burning statute and what Texas said is, look, we are trying to promote um, uh, promote patriotism and respect for the flag. And the court said that's a really laudable goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, really important but it's not as important it's an, I, that when we're balancing again default option is to protect speech when we're balancing speech against this goal we have to go with speech because burning the flag is this communicative act based on a communicative symbol so so those things are very very different but if there is a criminal act like the violence on January 6th. That's why that legitimate political discourse was so horrific to so many of us. The legitimate political discourse were the people who were protesting. Fine, go protest. Legitimate political discourse is not defecating on the, on the Capitol grounds and, and using, and, and using violence against, against policemen and breaking walls and doors and windows. That's not political discourse. That's criminal act. You wanted to communicate with it. Good for you. It's still not protected by the first amendment. So that's that conduct element. Now, when you, when you, when you, so when you talk about schools, schools are, very unique and schools you all you also have to break schools into public and private private again have a little bit more control over uh, over what they can do with with communication and and public and public have to really follow constitutional principles and in that tinker case basically the decision was um look you, students have a right to free speech as long as it doesn't cause cause um, a substantial disruption to the learning environment so so it's it's so there is a little bit more restriction on what kind of speech you can have in the school than what you can have in um on the streets and parks because you just can't cause a substantial disruption to the learning environment and the armband didn't do that um my favorite case to talk about in school was called Bethel is um and I can't remember the rest of it but Bethel and it was this kid who um made a speech at um at an, in the auditorium in school middle school and he was supporting his friend for president of the school and you know I don't know he's 12 13 14 years old and so in making the speech he uses all of these all this sexual innuendo in front of all these middle school kids you can only imagine what happened in that auditorium and so there was a substantial disruption and he was suspended and the court said yeah you're suspended you don't have a first amendment right to do that um more recently um there was a that did the cheerleader case who oh with the snapchat the Snapchat, right? And and she um, she tried out for varsity and she didn't make varsity. She was on JV for the second de- for the second year and she was upset about it. And on a weekend, she takes a Snapchat, a picture of herself. I think she had her middle finger raised, and I think there was a lot of I think there were a lot of expletives involved. Um, and and Snapchat, you know, it's only supposed to last twenty four hours. But but when she sent it out to her friends, one of her friends was uh, was the daughter of one of the cheerleading coaches, and she took. Um, a screenshot of it. So it lasted way longer than those 24 hours. The truth is there wasn't much of a substantial disruption. There was a little bit, but not a huge substantial disruption. And this all happened off school grounds um, on the weekend. Um, so that, so there wasn't really a, a nexus to the creation of the message in the school. And um, the problem, this is social media problem, right? All of our kids, you know, particularly from middle school up in in particular, are on their phones all the time. 
right? They're on the moon during class, in the hallways, when they leave school, on the weekends, when they're going to bed. And what they talk about is school stuff all the time. So if the school is going to is going to regulate speech that is related to the school in any way, they're like regulating speech all the time of all these students. And that's not okay. And so what the court said then is we're also context dependent. Like we need to know where the where the boundaries are between parental control or, 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 you know, or wherever the students, you know, live outside of the school and school control. And it is going to be context dependent where it's created, um, um, the time it's created, how disruptive it is. Um, and, you know, they didn't really set a lot of a lot of strong rules. But I think many of us who are parents are like, thank the good Lord um, <laughs> that they came up with that. Uh, your book is When Freedom Speaks, The Boundaries and the Boundlessness of Our First Amendment right um i mean talk a bit if you would about the about the book why you know why you you wrote it and that that really is compelling both boundaries is pretty much easy in what we've been talking about but i'll I'll confess everything we've talked about really is is on a limited fringe of speech there's nothing too disastrous that i hear in all the discussion we've had today i'm jane perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It does seem like America's really, you know, more in that boundlessness. There's a lot of speech going on, a lot of rights. But yeah, talk a bit about your book and, and, and what compelled you to write it. Um, so it's a long story, actually. So um, I went to uh, undergrad at Northwestern University, and I had a wonderful, wonderful professor, Franklin Heyman, who is um, who has since passed away just a couple of years ago. And he had a free speech class, and I took it. I think I was in my sophomore year, and just was 
just enamored with it. And um, I'm not alone, I understand. And that's one of the reasons why I decided to become a lawyer. I never did practice constitutional law, but it was one of the reasons I decided to become a lawyer. And I just loved the class. And many, many years later, I joined the faculty um, at Syracuse University in the Communication and Rhetorical Studies Department. And after I'd been teaching there about five years, I was given the opportunity to teach a First Amendment case uh, class. And I really did in my heart think about it as the grandchild of Professor Heyman's class. Um, and um, I looked for the book that that I used, which was way too old, but I had hoped that it had been it had been updated and it hadn't been. Um, and then so I tried to find something else and I did find a book that was excellent um, that he had written a forward on, but I found it to be um, very philosophical. And um, I find in my class, my students come into my class and their knowledge of the First Amendment is at best minimal um, and sometimes at zero. And I and so I need, you know, I need to teach them from the ground up. And so I ended up just developing my my own stuff. Um, and then over the and then, of course, you know, I would talk to my friends about it. And I had pretty smart friends and well-educated friends, and they had no idea about what I was talking about. And I kept on thinking, this is just a, this is heartbreaking to me. People ought to know this. And then, of course, came the 2016 election and these issues about First Amendment law were all over the news all the time. I am a news junkie, I will admit. Um, but they were all over the news all the time. And I thought, you know what? You know, I want to write this for my students. And I also want to write this for the general public. I don't want it just to be a, a book for the education for the education community. And that's when I started it. And I and I teach it and I wrote it as a teach it as a bunch of stories because all of these things that, like even Shaplinsky, we talked about this kid who was a Jehovah's Witness, um, and the burning draft card was another kid who was who was in college at I think Boston University. They're all about people, and there's are all stories um, that, about people, and that if you can tell the story so that you bring it to life, then you can also understand the principle that was applied to it. So I did a lot of research on newspapers, so I was able to get you know as much information as I could, including sometimes things about the weather on that day, um, and and developed and developed the book in that way. Um, and so that's the story of the that's the story of the book. Well, that's great. Um... There are two, if we have time, it's two quickie. Well, I don't know if they'll be quick, so maybe we could only get to one of them. But uh, your opinion of something like removing President Trump from Twitter and other cases like that, is it dangerous? I mean, we may, there's many of us that may cheer that. I think <laughs> I will go as far as to say on January 6th, I absolutely would have done it myself with what he was spouting out and the potential now for temporal and, and, and all of that. I think he might've been saved by Twitter in some way. Um, but after that, maybe it's troubling. Here's a political leader, former president, not on a major platform. How does it intersect with the first? And then I also wanted to ask about defamation, media defamation, but we may not have time. Okay. So, um, Twitter's private company. It's not run by the government. So they can, they can set their own rules and they can take off anyone they want. You know, Trump just started his Would own it ever reach a level, I guess this is too hypothetical, but would it ever reach a level where it's such a common communication form, like the old telephone, yeah. that they cannot do that anymore? Maybe. I hope not. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's dangerous, you know, that government controlling, controlling that. 
look, I mean, like I said, uh, Trump just started his own social. I mean, he did. He just, I right. mean, it's terrible right. and it's on its face, but he did it. So it's not like he's he's shut down. He isn't. And he can call into Fox whenever he wants to. Um, and, you know, he can start his own newspaper and his own television show. I mean, it's not like there aren't avenues open and available to him. So, you know, lucky Twitter there, you know, that they're, they're so popular, but, um, they're not government controlled. Um, I mean, there there are there are restrictions that can happen, and all there's there's all kinds of ways to regulate them um, that haven't happened and maybe should happen. Maybe maybe they really are able to manage not you know, that they've really benefited from a lack of regulation, which has not been okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so that can happen, and that certainly um, is is being investigated, and maybe some of that can can sort of uh, uh, rein them in a little bit. But um, I think this they're a private company, and I think it ought to stay that way. Fair enough. Uh, and then I don't know if this time is a is a media defamation. I bring it up mostly because it's probably uh, I'm concerned about it uh, because I think if you lose this, you lose everything, right? Times versus Sullivan, the ability of a newspaper to publish to publish news, and you know not just worry about government, but also worry about just oh the 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 anyone they report on is going to do a do a ten million dollar lawsuit. Well, the current law is you know is still there, and actually it's being used a lot. We've got Dominion and Smartmatic that are using defamation law against against um, Fox News and and some of their anchors, and against Giuliani. Um, it's alive and well and and doing well. And Palin just brought a defamation suit against the New York Times and That's got right. out on her rear end. So I think that it's alive and well and working. And you're basically talking about that Hulk Hogan. Um, oh, yes. Well, that, that's the one well, example. It seemed really scary because, right, Gawker well, just gets shut down. Well, it wasn't a defamation case. It was um, an invasion of privacy case. I see. Um, Hulk Hogan uh, did, um, sued as Terry Bollea. He sued in his personal capacity um, for right. an invasion of privacy. Um, and and you know and he and the, posi- the the position he took is Hulk Hogan is this character that I've created. And when I talk and when he talked about his body parts, the body parts that he talked about that existed on Hulk Hogan weren't the same ones that existed on Terry Bollea. Um, and all of the exploits of Hulk Hogan were different than Terry Bollea. And that what Gawker did was they invaded his privacy by publishing this sex tape. Was it an end run? Yes, it was an end run. But you won't get that on everybody. So it's not as de- it doesn't feel as dangerous. Yeah. It's not as dangerous. Um, you know, mm. there is this issue about editorial control. And, and it used to be in the Times versus Sullivan, you know, we, we really gave a lot of deference to the editorial control by newspapers. And now anyone with a keyboard and internet, internet connection is an editor. So, so I mean, there are those sort of issues. But, but I, I, I don't think that that really bodes bad news. I think that was pretty limited. That's okay. my personal feeling. Okay, I know that's definitely good to know. That's a- Besides what we talked about, anything else you think is, is important? I mean, I, I know we talked about a bunch. thing that, that I really think is very, very important for people to understand is that concept of morality and constitutionality. They're not the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that's really important to understand and to sort of figure out where we want, if we want intersection and when we want intersection. And by the way, who gets to decide? Like, you know, mm-hmm. hate speech. Really, a lot of people want to get rid of hate speech. And hate speech is awful and terrible and reduces the marketplace of ideas. Um, but um, 
how do, how, how do we do that? Like, are we going to have a list of words? <laughs> you know? I, I can't agree. You know, I worry, too. As much as I like sometimes Facebook bans somebody that I don't like, I do a lot of uh, reinterpretation of history. I don't do it in what I believe to be any sinister way or any weirdo way, really. But I do some things that aren't in the textbook. I talk about things that aren't the American textbook way. Or- well, honestly, in Texas, you'd be in trouble for a lot of things, right? Right now, I mean, they're really restricting what you can do. So, mm-hmm. who get? Like I said, who gets to decide? Yeah. And that's that's a frightening concept. That's why the default option being speech, I like. You know, I do. I think that you know, and um, and I think I think when we start talking about it, how we're going to how we're really going to implement this all all this again, that concept of morality and constitutionality is a really important discussion to have. Well, that's great. Well, we've been talking to Professor Lynn Greenkey. Thank you so much for for coming on today. Thank you. And uh, remember, our website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. We want to thank Lynn Greenkey for coming on. We are part of the Airwave Media Network, uh, home of Infamous America podcast, the sit-down podcast, too, that I've been really enjoying, Ben Franklin's World, and others. And I thank you for listening.